The following audio is from Redeemer Anglican Church in Richmond, Virginia. More information about Redeemer is available online at RedeemerRVA.org. Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, please stand for the reading of the gospel. The gospel reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 28 to 33, and that's on page 812 of your pew Bibles. The holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Sorry, I said 26, it's 28, isn't it? (laughs) Excuse me. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, friends. My name is Alex Riffey. I am known to some of you, maybe not all of you, but I am uh, the chaplain in residence here at Redeemer Anglican. Um, This is our summer series where we are going through and journeying through different books of the Bible, specifically today, uh, Psalm 63. Now, you might have noticed Dan's not here today. He was preaching at another church. He promised he might be here at the end. So, you know, if you want to talk to somebody that's a little taller, has a little bit less shine to his head, Um, he'll be there. But as we are are doing this series also to hear different perspectives, I definitely have, have one that I wish to offer to you today. And we'll begin. 
150. That's the number of books that are in the book of Psalms. 150 Psalms lie within its text. And this was a reminder that was given to us last week by our guest preacher, who was talking about the importance of emotional expression when we try to pray or when we commune with God. And I've always believed that if you've ever wanted to get a small glimpse of the scope of human feeling, you you don't really need to turn anywhere else other than the book of Psalms. It's an amazing thing. These songs, these poems, these prayers, these praises help us to uncover what it is to truly worship or to cry out. We can read them and find our own words. We can use our emotions when there are no words by reading it and know that God hears that as our prayer. We can read them and discern different things like our wants or our needs, or take a look at the the breadth of emotional range of resentment and forgiveness or hatred and kindness of love or fear or joy. Because we know that when we read these texts, when we say them as prayers of our own, we know that God accepts them as an offering. And wherever we are, if we offer our true selves, God is able to transform what we pray into wholeness. So it's important that whenever we pray or whenever we read from Scripture, that we bring our emotional selves to God. But today, as we take a look at Psalm 63, I want to take a step a little beyond simply talking about our feelings or the importance of emotional expression. I want to take a look at the things that actually influence how we feel, often naming as the motivations that lie behind our motivations, or motivations that lie behind our prayers and and influences, but also the objects that we hold, that we devote our lives to. It's my belief that there are many pathways that can lead us to feel a certain way. We all know what it feels like to be scared. We know what fear feels like. But fear in the midst of danger, or fear because of some past hurt, or fear of an uncertain future, feels a little different. And the roads that lead us to feel that certain way and lean toward God in prayer, they too differ. Some lead us to the one true God that's revealed to us in Scripture. Others can lead us to this sort of caricature of God that speaks to a legitimate need within the human heart, but is empowered by a misguided will. So as we turn to Psalm 63 as part of this summer series, I want us to use this question as a guide. What is the true aim and object of our seeking. When we look at ourselves, when we dare to have the confidence to feel that we can come to God, and we should have the confidence to come to God with anything, in prayer, what is our true aim and object that we seek? So if you are the one that likes to look in your Bibles uh, during the sermon, please again, Psalm 63 is on page 479. I want to dive into a little bit of things that were highlighted for me when I was reading through the text, and we'll go from there. From verse 1, the very first image that pops into my head is this idea of thirst, thirsting for God. This thirst then grows into a deep yearning, and you can see it verse to verse. Thirst tends to, uh, turns to images of fainting or looking for or lips praising, knowing what blessing is, knowing what grace feels like, and culminating on this idea of meditating on God, meditating on the Lord during a night's watch or upon one's bed at night. 
a place of stillness and great vulnerability. So much so is this yearning that we see in this text, the desire and for comfort and protection that we see evokes another image that's actually quite familiar to us throughout the Bible, a vulnerable creature that's seeking the warm and comforting embrace and countenance of another. Verse seven, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Only then, from this place of comfort and protection, do we see that the man who is singing or praying this psalm turned to an image of an oppressor, envisioning the God of truth, setting things right and casting down what does not accord with that truth. And whenever I read something in a psalm that, that talks about comfort but then moves to a really difficult and hard position, I personally try to ask myself a few questions. Is there ego in this vision that we're reading? Is it coming from a place of goodwill despite its gruesome image? Or does the one that's uttering these words know righteousness and see it in God to whom he prays? So turning that he into David, who is the author of this particular psalm, we can get a backdrop of what may have been occurring, what he was seeing when he first wrote this. If we look at 1 Samuel 23, it's an image of a man who successfully fled from their enemy. They found safety in a rock and outcrop upon the top of a hill. He's a knowledgeable man of war. He knows his enemy, but he also knows his own limitations. At this point in the journey, David is the kind of man that before he dares to advance upon an enemy or to retreat to a place of safety, he begins everything with prayer, trying to discern what the will of God is. At this point, key figures who should oppose him as a political leader affirm his right to rule as something that is God-given and not simply established by man. At this point, we see the culmination of fear, of yearning, and hope that the God of righteousness will establish righteousness, even if it involves the tragic notion of taking a life, which is something that I have always had trouble reconciling. I can imagine that David being the one that offered this prayer, this psalm. It's a place that's seeking rightness and wholeness through the will of God. The problem, however, is that when we offer a prayer like this, we may be offering it from a similar standpoint, but it's also possible that we're offering it in a different kind of way. We might offer our emotions and desires from God from a misguided understanding what is right motivation and what objects of devotion we should be seeking. So let me explain. I'm gonna do my best here. <laughs> when I was growing up, my older brother Andrew and I used to wrestle all the time We'd look at the TV station, we'd see these really jacked up, roided guys battling it out in the ring, and we thought to ourselves, him a nine-year-old, me probably five, and he would say, hey, that looks like fun, let's do it. We would mimic what we saw on the television screen, and my brother, who one of his favorites, would, would, would become macho man Randy Savage, give his best, oh yeah. Try to hulk it up, brother. Didn't do well. I believe that Hogan would, would give me some idea, some courage to actually defeat this much larger sibling of mine. And, you know, right when we start, right when we begin, within moments, contact, a real blow cap happens, and, and what do I do? 
I run screaming to my mother. Without question, she opened her arms. She saw her crying child, embraced me, and protected me. I knew that from that image, at that time, I was now under the shadow of her wing. Immediately, though, I looked up at her and I yelled, Andrew hit me. I knew that he wanted to get a few shots in on his little brother. I knew that he had done this before. I knew that I fell for it again. But I also knew in my mind's eye that now he was going to get it. But instead of wishing for restoration, what I was wanting was retribution. And within her embrace, I was truly asking, dearest mother, please smite thine wicked son, post haste. And the response that I wanted was not what I heard. I think a lot of parents, me being a parent, I now hear this in my dreams. My mother, still protecting me, asked, well, what were you two doing? No one got in trouble. Restoration was made. My prayers that new blessing and yearning and pain was offered, but the grace that I wanted to see was not the grace that I saw before me. It was different. We got redirected, showed what right behavior should look like, sent off to play until our next sort of (laughs) kerfuffle or transgression occurred. So imagine rereading Psalm 63 again, but changing the motivation behind the prayer. Instead of this return to righteousness, it is now a desire for retribution. Those last three verses, even if the circumstances were the same as David's upon that ridge, the last three verses might sound different if his motivations were misplaced. Our motivations are misplaced. Through Scripture, we're granted some insight into prayer that that understands the fullness and expression of God's righteousness and our need to navigate not only our emotions, but the motivations behind them. So we can look elsewhere to try to gauge where our hearts should truly lie. We might look at Christ's words in Matthew 5, 44 as a gauge. It says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The word of God is never to be read in isolation, but rather in its entirety. Even in the seemingly disparate texts of the Old Testament and the New Testament, I for one believe that there is a divine pulse, a unity that lies within the whole. And even if we are focusing on one thing in particular, allowing Scripture as a whole to speak to us, it enfleshes us to better understand the words and intentions behind the parts of Scripture we read in our own selves. As such, we must endeavor to ground our emotional responses to God within the framework of Scripture. Without it, we run the danger of being led to half-truths about God and ourselves. We might misconstrue what is right and good and virtuous, redefining our pursuits solely on passions in present circumstances. Does that feel real? We can look at examples of the past and our current present of physical strife or war to know the truth of this. Within our own land, we might recall in 2015, Charleston, South Carolina, there was a church shooting where nine African Americans lost their lives during a Bible study to a young man with deep racial hatred in his heart. Now, the nation did truthfully offer its prayers, but soon the debate turned solely to deeply embedded partisanship 
between issues of justice or mental health or gun rights, what was left on the back burner then were the names of the individuals who actually lost their life. Clementa C. Pinckney, Cynthia Graham, Susie Jackson, Ethel Lee Lance, DePayne Middleton Doctor, Tawanza Sanders, Daniel L. Simmons, Sharonda Coleman Singleton, Myra Thompson, children of God. In Europe, we continue to learn of the many atrocities occurring in the war of Russia and Ukraine. We offer our prayers for justice and for God's transformation, yet within them one might pray for the children and adults who have lost their lives in Ukraine, but failed to consider family who have lost loved ones in the Russian military. They too may abhor what is going on and now grieve for something that lies outside of our control. The reason I bring this up, it's not necessarily how I see the world or what I believe, but the reason I bring this up is that we envision many things to be righteous and we see many paths toward restoration, but our scope is always somewhat limited. It is always somewhat skewed based on our worldviews, our passions, our desires, our biases. I struggle with this. I believe that we all do to some degree which then leads us to the second problem. Despite our motivations beyond them, what is the object of our devotion in the midst of prayer? When we look at prayer, what things do we normally focus on? Do we see God as primarily a comforter or a judge? Is God a justice warrior, a savior, a friend, or a source of validation and gratification? Is he our guide or a teacher, a parent? Or is God simply a mirror of what we already believe and want to be true? I believe that Christians who have known Jesus Christ, who have come to him in faith, who know that moment where they have felt transformed, that they have grown, they've seen the will of God, some semblance, some spark of it, some holistic view of what it is to be a renewed child of God and what it is to see the kingdom that is always coming. But I also believe that it's easy for that experience that we know that experience and image can be clouded over time when we forget the life that we are called to serve him in. I know this to be true from past moments when I would still consider myself as a person of faith. I know that there are things even now that are known, probably a lot of things unknown, that I can't move past, that I can't move past save God and his deliverance. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote on this conundrum in one of his lesser-known essays entitled First Things and Second Things. When discussing art and literature, he noticed that at some point in human history, it had moved, art and literature had moved from a way to express a greater good to an end in of itself. Art for art's sake, as opposed to art, for instance, as a way to kindle devotion to God or to express an experience that only humans truly know. Lewis writes this, every preference of a small good to a great or a partial good to a total good involves the loss of the small and partial good for which the sacrifice is made. Apparently the world is made that way. You can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only by putting first things first. So imagine, if you will, a devoted relationship, 
A man and a woman, they come together in marriage and they truly believe that God has brought them together, that the blessing that they receive, they are now united, bonded as one flesh. And they get this whole view of what marriage might and could and should look like together. But time, change, influence can cause that certainty to grow very uncertain of what relationship should be. It can confuse us to see purposes of that relationship in different ways. A man who has received emotional validation and physical comfort with that union may face stress and adversity. And when that stress and adversity continue to happen over and over again, they may use and see their spouse in too narrow of a focus and use them as a coping mechanism. They see their spouse in the small framework of need and fail to see them as they truly are. It's easy for us to forget that the people that we love, God that we worship, is a lot more than the things that we focus on, especially when our need zeroes in on something that we feel inadequate about. A woman who received little attention from her family when she was a youth may find it in her union, but when the needs of the family call their spouse away, feelings of rejection may resurface and redefine what a good relationship should look like. So there's this constant juggle between right and wrong, good and bad, that's further complicated by the ongoing pressures of life and the hurts that we carry with us. And my belief is that it starts here. (laughs) It doesn't go away, but we can give them to God and God can walk us through it. If all we want is validation or pleasure or attention, then the spouse that we've created, again in this example, in our mind overtakes the reality of those that we were bonded to. And that spouse that we've created that doesn't actually exist (laughs) then threatens our ability to give space for our real partner to exist as they are created to be within that bonded union. I can imagine again praying Psalm 63 and being hyper-focused on one thing. Do you ever read a text and one thing really just jumps up at you? I do it all the time. And probably because there's a real need there. But if all we see is that one thing and it continues to be that thing that we focus on solely over and over and over again, we might be missing something. And we might be making God or our prayer life into something that is lesser than the totality that we, we try to experience or we profess to on a daily basis. We hyper-focus on things like thirst or the image of embrace, to be hidden by the shadow of God's wing and a sign for yearning and comfort. God is our comforter. There's no doubt to that, but God is more than that. And our role in faith lies far beyond seeking the pleasure of God's countenance. In a desire for comfort, we also dare to seek God's righteousness. Do we do that? When we ask for something, do we also ask for God's righteousness in our lives, for ourselves and for others? Not necessarily. So if our prayers stem from a caricature of God, my belief is that even if we give emotional expression, if we do not share our true selves, if we do not look and know our true emotions and motivations, then what we offer actually isn't where we are to God in the first place. But I believe there's a solution. As we bring our full selves to God, through the means of emotional expression, we must endeavor to keep first things first and second things second. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 
that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things will be added to you. When we allow this to be our lens for love and living, for trailblazing or shelter-seeking, when we allow this to be our lens to guide us through adversity or to help us deal rightly when given power, then our Lord God will not only accept the prayer as it is, but also provide what is needed to transform the circumstances and shortcomings of our lives into something that is holy amid what we often profane. We flip the relationship between our emotional selves and God. And instead of letting our emotions be the driving force, trying to encapsulate our Lord within that small frame of observation and expression, we allow the fullness of God's revelation in Jesus Christ to embrace our disparate feelings and lead us to fullness, the image that God granted to us at the day of creation. When we know our motivations, when we know what our object of devotion should truly be, we can sort of catch a glimpse of what it might have felt like to be human on the day of creation, to see God as God sees us and not as how we see each other or ourselves. So as we seek the one true God, may we allow God's spoken word to provide us what is needed to respond. With kingdom seeking as our motivation, may righteousness be on our lips so that we may know what it is to truly thirst or bless or cling to or seek from God in prayer. Lord, in all things, your kingdom come. Let us pray. Lord God, it is true that you know us before we ever speak a word. But we pray also that we may know you, not as we see, but as your scripture allows us to see. Let not pain and desire be the masters that drive our will, but grant us renewed strength in the sacrifice of your son and the power of your Holy Spirit to kneel and allow your kingdom and reign to be within us and around us and within your creation. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.